Hi, welcome to the ESI What's Next podcast. I'm your host, Alex Feldman, and I'm taking you on a journey to learn about the exciting student entrepreneurs coming out of the ESI program. In the first part of our mini-series, Entrepreneurship Beyond Stigma, we are sitting down with Dr. Nikki Pruse, founder of Liberos and a researcher at UCLA to learn about her journey researching sex and sexual health and about some of the challenges that plague people today. As sex and sexuality become more and more in the open, it allows us to be, have more transparent conversations on the topic. It makes you wonder where these conversations will lead. Nikki, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get started, can you let the audience know a little bit about yourself? Sure, thanks for having me on. I'm currently a scientist working at University of California, Los Angeles here in the US, but also have a company independent of that called Libros. And part of what you alluded to there, the purpose of the company is exactly because there's some challenges in getting this kind of research done on a university campus and the LLC structure allows me a little bit more freedom. So my academic background is in clinical science, uh, which can be a lot of different things. In my case, it's a combination of neuroscience and statistics. So a lot of what I study is sexual physiology. So actually bringing people into a laboratory setting where we look at their sexual arousal. Some of the projects that are very active for me right now are, for example, the impact of pornography on the brain and orgasm physiology, especially in women, kind of how that works and what its effects are. So there are uh, very, very few of us <laughs> doing this kind of work, you might imagine. Okay, can I ask, because you, you said that, so what made you decide to be, let's say, part of this few that, that are studying sexuality? It wasn't much of a decision, frankly. I happened to be at Indiana University through nothing related to this and needed to take a laboratory credit at a liberal arts school and saw the Kinsey Institute was offering it. I had no idea at the time the Kinsey Institute was really one of the only uh, sexual physiology research institutes in the U.S. <laughs> there are very, very few walked in and I just fell in love with the idea that you could objectively study this kind of stuff. I thought it was too ephemeral, too mushy to, you know, like trying to study love or something, but it turns out they're actually really, really clear physiological markers. And I thought, well, why, why would we ask anyone <laughs> what they feel or what they're doing without also having these measures? And uh, as a nerd who likes tech, there's a lot of hardware and fun stuff you can do in that space as well around development because the field is tiny. So whereas if you like to study depression, you know, you got thousands of other PhD depression researchers working in that space, sex, you can still discover new structures, new anatomy, you can, you know, find new physiology no one's heard of before. So it's a very uh, young still in a lot of ways field because it's stigmatized even within science. So not a lot of people go into it. It's seen as kind of a fringe area. And that leaves it uh, wide open for those of us that are looking to make fun discoveries. From from that, why do you think that the you probably but why do you think of let's say something that's been part of humanity since the beginning is so under researched in the field? It's, it seems like this we would have been trying to answer these questions ages ago, but but you know why is it so young from a scientific perspective? I think some of it's personal and some of it's structural. So from an individual perspective, I still run into scientists who say, I can't collaborate with you. My wife would be upset. 
I haven't heard that just once or twice. <laughs> this is literally, there are scientists concerned about the personal implications of being involved in a field like this, that they're going to be seen as a pervert or that their wife thinks just studying this or showing people pornography is cheating somehow. Just some really, to me, kind of strange ideas around like what that means to study in this area. Uh, and then structurally, we have in the US, the National Institutes of Health and National Science Foundation are kind of our main funding bodies. If you use the word sexual in an abstract, you come up automatically in congressional aid searches of our uh, what's called CRISPR here. And in the history of NIH, five grants have ever been brought up for defunding. All five were sex grants. So even if you're able to get a grant to study this in the US, there's a very good chance you'll lose it. Uh, the politicians actively fight to keep this from being funded so that people can't know. And I'm not sure exactly what the vitriol is, because in all those cases, it was just you know, scientists doing their job. <laughs> um, but so that I'd say there are actual personal kind of weird reasons around stigma and sexuality on an individual level and what the scientists think that means about them and their relationships. But then also structurally, the granting agencies have a, a unique problem, even if they want to fund us and want to be supportive, uh, they're going to face congressional opposition. Andrew, do, is this something, because you said particularly about the United States, and I know I'm an American as well. It's, you know, the United States, it was essentially founded on puritanical, which is kind of a very conservative branch yeah. of, of, of Christianity. Are, are these same issues international as well, or let's say more, or let's say less um, morally conservative parts of the world also have these similar issues about doing sex research or, or is it kind of just the U.S. because of its particular history or other, let's say, conservative parts of the world? As well. It's uniquely American. So Canada, for example, has a funding uh, initiative through Justin Trudeau to fund women's sexual health. That would never happen here. And as a result, most of my colleagues have moved to Canada. Um, so there are very few of us in the States because of that. Uh, Europe has a unique challenge because they're a lot more open. They tend to have a lot fun more funding in that space, uh, but their grants tend to be much smaller. So we have a lot of money to do research here, but we can't get access to it. And then places where they do have access, the pots just aren't as big. So they can't do the big clinical trials and some of the things that you know, we really need money to be able to investigate. Got you. And I guess from, from that thing is, let's say, what are the areas that you think are, let's say, the most important areas to be investigated? What are the kind of the biggest questions that we, we need answered at the moment um, within the, the sex, sex and sex health space? So to me, I'm really interested in the health applications of sexual stimulation. So I always say, like, if I happen to help people orgasm, that's great, but I don't really care <laughs> directly about that. Um, lovely if I if it happens to go that way. And so to me, it's understanding, for example, we know very, very little about that peak experience. Like, what is a climax? What does that do to inflammatory cytokines? You know, that's the focus of a study we have right now. And obviously it's a huge endogenous body response of some kind. <laughs> so if it's inflaming the body and you've got an inflammatory pain disorder, we need to know that. Uh, if it, on the other hand, is reducing inflammatory markers grossly uh, and would aid your pain disorder, we need to know that. You know, these can be potential interventions for non-sexual disorders, but uh, we have just no window on what happens in the body from an orgasm perspective. The studies we look at in that are like from the early 80s, mid 80s with samples of 12 people. This is not acceptable. You know, I mean, the, we just don't know what happens. And so to me, that's a space. Most of the study of sexual physiology that we do have is three to five minutes long. 
We look at people just as they start to get aroused, and then we kick them out of the lab. And there's good practical reasons for that. You know, it's, it takes a while, and standardizing climax is hard. There are lots of things that are difficult about studying it. But we need that window, I think. It's ridiculous that we, <laughs> the little that we know about sex is usually the first three minutes of it. <laughs> okay. Interesting. And okay, there's sort of two different questions I, I want to ask. I'm trying to think of what would be the best order. Let's, let's do the more futuristic one first, and then we'll kind of backtrack to the other one. From, from what you're saying, do you like ultimately see, let's say, in an ideal world, the outcome of your, your research would be like, doctors prescribing certain sexual things for specific uh, ailments? Is, is that kind Absolutely. of where you're hoping to go with this? That's exactly where I'm headed. So I say, if you've ever masturbated to help yourself fall asleep at night, that's what I'm talking about. Interesting. And I guess <laughs> a different sort of question, slightly different line. It, it seems like almost um, like I have a background in toxicology. So, so I have some, some really interest there. It seems like almost in a lot of ways, this reminds me of, let's say, some of the early research around psychedelics. And mm-hmm. if you really looked at what happened with, with psychedelic research, we had research up until essentially the early 70s. Then with the, the Controlled Substance Act and the drug laws, we pretty much shut that down for about 30, 40 years. And only in the 2000s brought it up again. And now all of a sudden, I think you're really starting to see um, the fruits of that labor where you're starting to realize the, the potential benefits for mental health or, or, or all these other particularly mental health, but a couple other fields as well. Do you see, it sounds like sexual research might go on, let's say a similar pathway, like you were saying before, we have research from the eighties, but now there's sort of a huge gap and maybe we'll, we'll be able to revive it. Does that, do those parallels make sense at all? Or, or am I kind of connecting dots that don't exist? Yeah, we have some parallels there. I think, you know, the major benefit that we have is an endogenous response. So where a lot of the fears around psychedelics were side effect related or an intended effect related, um, that is, what if I overdose? What if there's an addiction? What if there's a, the sexual response is self-limiting? You know, that's what the kind of refractory period is about. <laughs> that is, uh, generally speaking, you cannot overdose yourself on these things. They're accessible, they're low cost. So while there are parallels, I think in some of the areas of stigma, I think the, the stigma is kind of unique and different in our case. And I'm not sure if we'll get past it. So we happen to be having a renaissance right now and kind of backlash against sexuality in the States. And I'm not sure where that's gonna go. And with, this tends to happen over time, right? It, it vacillates um, from all kinds of early Comstock laws and <laughs> things that used to be in place with sexuality also. But uh, I think the differences with uh, substances, it seems like there's a general trend towards deregulation over time. And with sex, it seems to vacillate more. Like I feel like there's more uh, return of conservatism where they say, oh no, we can't study it again. Oh no, okay, we can for four years. Okay, now we can't again. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, hope that there would be more of a parallel where there's kind of a trend towards improving this over time, but it's a real challenge unique in the U.S., so it may be our colleagues that ultimately pull that off, and my guess is Canada is probably going to pull ahead of us in that space. Interesting, but do you see this as something that, let's say, is like almost like a sine wave moving flat, or there's a general trend in one direction or another, and even though it's kind of oscillating around the trend line, it's still trending one way or the other? That's my concern is that I think with psychedelics, there is a general impression is there's a general trend towards openness. I don't see that with sexuality. I think we have had periods of backlash that don't trend down. 
So we will get a gap of a year or two where we're able to like sneak in a study or two that has some discovery and then that lab gets shut down or you know this happens and then they threaten to kill that scientist and they leave uh, the field, which has happened more than once. Um, so it's because I think our field is so tiny, it's very easy to threaten us. You know, it's uh, taking one of us out can kind of decimate an area of research. So uh, that's part of the concern. We just don't have a critical mass. Uh, and I, I don't know that we're going to get it just because of some of the stigma around that, especially in the states. Sorry to be pessimistic. I just <laughs> I wish I had better. But that's my sense is like it just keeps happening over and over to us. And it doesn't seem to be a positive trend. <laughs> So, so maybe a question I have, because it sounds like this might be kind of connected to, to your own journey. Okay, so it doesn't, it seems like to some extent, I don't know, on, on the kind of academic and, and public side, it's, it's going in circles. Um, but it sounds like even what you've done yourself is you've translated this into the private side. Is, mm -hmm. is, is, is that where sort of, I don't know, it, it let's say opens up a, fate, uh, a place, a space for this to be solved in kind of the private markets, sort of through companies and, and innovation where... Generally speaking, let's say there's a lot less regulation around these types of issues. There are opportunities to do that kind of work in the private space, but then there's a disconnect between what scientists know and what the private space seems to be doing. And so I like to differentiate between technology and innovation. And I feel like there's a lot of technology going on in sex space and private industry right now, but very little innovation. Like we're getting new and different vibrators or a different way to hold them or a um, you know, oh, this one's stronger, this one's okay, but <laughs> we don't know anything about why, you know, why that frequency, why that grip, what does that do to physiology? So there's nothing, you know, kind of underlying or supporting it. And, you know, the, for obvious reasons, the companies don't have interest in publishing peer-reviewed science. I mean, that's not their job. So I think, you know, there's a potential there, but I've not really seen that exploited in my own company. It's like, we're not trying to develop stuff to sell, you know, we're taking contracts and grants and I mainly have that entity to keep things away from the university when I feel like the university is likely to have a problem with it, which is common. <laughs> uh, interesting. So to, to a certain extent for you, the, the fact that you put it in, in, in an entity almost shields you from some of the, I don't know, negative, whatever that, that might come when, if it came through the university. hundred percent. The shield. So I've had letter writing campaigns to have me fired, for example, from the university, but they're ineffective if my most controversial work isn't being done there. Interesting. Do you have any issues, let's say, because of the association with 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 your company? Are they trying to, let's say, use that as a way to to get you, so to speak? Uh, so far, it's been working out a lot better. So I was at UCLA previously as a researcher in the Department of Psychiatry and was trying to do this work there and having trouble getting it through Institutional Review Board, um, stuff that would pass through a different U.S. university with no changes, like we couldn't get through ours. And so it's very much an institutional issue, like some universities are just more conservative than others. And so I was worried. I was like, I don't think I can do this here. <laughs> you know, They're not going to let me do my work. Uh, and so this was the solution that I've come up with so far is to say, okay, if you don't like that particular thing, and so they were objecting to people having a climax on campus. Uh, I understand they have donors, they may have concerns around that kind of a protocol. So let me do that protocol at my company. I'll say, you know, it's Libros doing that, not UCLA. <laughs> And I can still be a UCLA scientist. And now I'm in the Department of Medicine, so I've moved spaces. 
and uh, just be careful kind of picking and choosing, you know, what I do one place versus another in a way that helps the university have distance when they need it. And uh, also me, you know, to have distance when I feel like someone may go after my job again or uh, something like that. It's, I don't know that I found the solution, <laughs> but this is the tightrope I'm currently walking. <laughs> Got you. From, so it sounds like you, you gave a good example of, let's say, what you would need to take out of the university. What would be the type of thing where you could actually do it, let's say, at UCLA or another academic institution? Like, what would you be able to keep in-house, in so to speak? Yeah, so I do some research on social media disinformation. So, you know, we often talk about sex education and misinformation and people not having accurate information. Uh, these days, I'm a lot more worried about disinformation. People are selling sex products that uh, they know don't work um, or have no basis for, and we actually are seeing harm in our patients uh, when they come in and say, oh, I tried this, and we're like, oh, what, why, <laughs> you know, who's selling that? And uh, so that kind of work uh, around health disinformation, you know, I scrape Reddit, I scrape Twitter, you know, we look at social network analyses to try to understand how that information is getting transmitted, who's doing it. Um, you know, where the for-profit is coming from in those cases, that work is being done currently at UCLA and looking at, you know, supposed support networks around sexual information, like how is sexual information being spread? Um, uh, you know, how is that different? And right now we're working in adults because it's very, very sticky to work around sexual issues with kids. But, you know, a lot of this stuff is being transmitted to youth online. And so we have some interest in that, like what is the difference in kind of how these youth forums are picking this information up. So uh, I think like that kind of information can be done at UCLA. Uh, I work on sexual dysfunction in the context of liver disease and that kind of information we can get there. Again, that's primarily about liver disease and then looking at the potential impact of non-alcoholic fatty liver on uh, erection functioning or uh, desire issues and its impact on the couple and support, you know, as they go through a transplant or so those kind of issues I think are fine and they don't have a problem with, <laughs> but it's every product, every project we kind of have to think about, okay, <laughs> you know, what's going to be the the reaction and can we do this here? Which ethics board do we need for this one? Uh, and you just have to tread carefully. It, it sounds like to, to some extent it, it almost, let's say the, the projects that are a degree or two removed from the actual sex itself or ones that you, let's say, are okayed by the university. If it's sort of the consequences of the, the information around something that's kind of a degree or two separate but the actual act itself, it seems like you have to bring outside. Would that be a, a decent way of describing it? or, or am I fair. Absolutely. So it's like the project that we're doing that's outside UCLA, you know, is funded by a nonprofit foundation. It's not some weird, you know, sex uh, one-off or strange orgasm claim. It's a patient population that we're working on, but to study it, they need to have a climax in the lab. We're using an anal probe as a part of that study and that I found made UC very skittish. And I said, okay, you know, I'll take that. Then <laughs> even though I'm here at the school, let me do that physical work offsite. I'm really curious, let's say based on your research, what type of issues do you think tech can be really, really helpful with? And what types of issues do you think that say tech isn't necessarily appropriate or I don't know, let's say 
I like to think sometimes tech gets overused and where there's like a very kind of low tech. Um, I, I could imagine for sexuality, it could be a lot of these problems would be solved if we just like communicated better. And that's like a very low techy way of looking at things. And I'd just be curious what you think from your research, you know, which things you say like, oh, tech would be really helpful here. And which other things would you say like, yeah, maybe tech would be helpful, but it's really, there's other things that you could do that would be, let's say maybe simpler than technology that would actually help a lot. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. I feel like tech actually could have a role even in the more simple areas. So for example, I also happen to be a licensed psychologist, although I don't currently see patients, but I often would encourage clients if they come in as couples with sexual issues, there was, I won't mention the specific one because I don't remember <laughs> the name, but there was an app where they could fill out their sexual preferences and it would only show the other one, the preference if they matched on it, if they both agreed it was something they're interested in. And people are remarkably horrible about talking about sex with their partner. It's even people who are very open and accepting say things in such a way. I was like, oh God, why would you? <laughs> it's like, no wonder they had a bad reaction. Uh, and so in that case, the app was great for kind of facilitating something that reduced the risk of stigma because they wouldn't reveal this preference to their partner unless their partner also expressed that preference. Awesome. I love that app. It, it was, uh, there was a free version. I had people do it often. And so I think even though the communication is a huge part of what we do as clinicians, there's a way to create tech around it that's useful in uh, keeping the bar very low for people engaging uh, where they don't feel like they're stupid. You know, it's not like, uh, I always say people don't, no one wants to think they're dumb at sex. You know, so the likelihood that, oh, I'll go to a sex ed program, I think is very low, especially for men because they don't wanna think I'm dumb at sex, I'm bad at sex. I don't need education. You know, that's a very tough sell. Uh, but, you know, helping me spice things up with my partner packaged in that way, communication becomes a lot more interesting and something that can be uh, subject to tech. The other place where I think tech is potentially more interesting is where we are doing some of the more cutting edge work. So again, I don't know that, uh, you know, the next vibrator is as interesting. Uh, there's not a lot my guess is not a lot further we can do in terms of vibrating clitoris. You know, that's played out that we've studied pretty extensively. Um, but there was some recent research on suction devices around the clitoris that were fairly novel and that actually seemed to enhance orgasm consistency when you stop using them, which makes it more of a therapeutic device. That was a really interesting study. There was some work we did around brain stimulation uh, and so that's using a central mechanism where you actually do something to modulate the activity neurally in the brain that uh, impacts downstream what the genitals may do or be responsive to. And I can imagine there are all kinds of products that could be developed around there. And I've seen zero <laughs> being developed in that space. And I, I know there's some challenges, you know, we've always got the FDA balance here where, you know, we got to worry if we're crossing into something therapeutic that they're going to want to regulate. Uh, but there's a lot of technology, I think, that's cutting edge that we're just getting into that could be monetized. It's new and different. And I don't see a lot of that innovation getting into the private space yet. That, from what you were saying with the FDA, it's interesting of, of it almost reminds me because I think, let's say, with, with a lot of devices, you, you can, let's say, toe the line very carefully. Mm -hmm. So it's like not looked at as an actual therapeutic device. But let's say in the sex space, it's almost you know, there's the vibrating massagers that everyone kind of wink, wink knows is, is actually a vibrator, but it's sold as a massager. I feel like you can sort of do the same type of thing 
with the device in the way that you, you mentioned, I'm not sure if, if, if that makes sense or not, and kind of not to skirt the rules, but to sort of say that like, okay, this hasn't been actually gone through the clinical process for, let's say sleep, for example. Um, so we could say that, you know, oh, maybe this helps you, but you, it's not a clinical medical device for sleep per se. Yeah, I've seen all kinds of interesting solutions to those. And the, the most common thing seems to be people just say sexual wellness now. And that's part of why wellness has become such a buzzword is because, oh, no, now we're not treating anything. And there are some structural things that have changed too. So like in the US, we just had a new version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual come out or the DSM. So we used to have hypoactive sexual desire disorder that doesn't exist anymore. It's a different entity now. So if you just say like, I'm enhancing sex drive, that used to be very risky because you're very close to HSDD diagnosis and maybe you're treating something and FDA wants to know about it. Now you're further from it if you're addressing desire because that disorder doesn't exist anymore. And so I think a lot of uh, people choose to frame this as sexual enhancement, sexual wellness, uh, just to try and get around those kind of claims. Uh, the wink wink um, part of it, I, I totally hear, but also at some point you have to say like, this is how you use this because these are kind of esoteric <laughs> hardwares. That is, uh, you know, if you don't say, this is where this goes, <laughs> you know, optimally, you should put this here. Um, you know, we have that with a lot of people that do electrical play, they'll uh, use these TENS units that are intended for physical therapy stimulation. And we see recommendations online sometimes. I was like, that is entirely too close to your heart. And that is dangerous <laughs> and do not do that. Um, because there's this wink, wink, nudge, nudge about the what this thing is being used for, uh, I think by maybe as many people who buy it for sexual purposes as buy it for physical therapy. And it's risky. You know, I think that maybe too, like that kind of thing can be a bridge too far if you're not explicit enough about kind of what the intended use is. So like, also, I think, I think it's still the case that uh, dildos in the U.S. are marked not for internal use. So that they don't have to, you know, follow regulations that would be necessary to properly clean an instrument that's porous. Uh, you know, in the way we have to clean and think about our instrumentation to study research participants, um, there are tons of regulations about, you know, how we clean that, how we store that, uh, how we protect it, and they don't want to fall into that. So they they make a dildo and say not for internal use, like. Really, you know, like at some point, I think, uh, you know, how can we keep having these conversations and say, oh, it goes here, it does that, uh, but you shouldn't use it for that. Of course, they're using it for that. And so I think I hear what you're saying. It's like there is there is a potential for a dance there, but at some point you have to be a bit more explicit enough that, you know, things are safe and that people understand the intended use. Uh, if you can't be at least that explicit, then yeah, I'd wonder about the marketability and <laughs> what you're going to be able to, to do if you can at some point tell people this is what to do with it and this is why we think you should do this. <laughs> sure. I imagine as well, um, it comes with, again, with my background, I, I think a little bit more from, from the drug side, but I imagine that part of it is as well that if you can't explicitly say these things, then you, you run the risk of misuse and then it becomes a, much more of a safety issue. Of, of because where, where, whereas if you were, a, let's say, more able to to be transparent about how to use this, it'd be way safer um, for, for everyone involved. Like, so you're actually kind of increasing the risk for, for everyone who uses it. There is a lot of opportunity for European developers here because it's stuff we can't do 
uh, we're cut off here in a lot of ways. And so take advantage of it. You should. <laughs> if our if our government doesn't support that kind of development and others do, then that's where you can take advantage and uh, you know be explicit about how to use it and get people using it in the way that's most effective rather than what we're having to do, which is you know, hinting at, not explicitly saying, not really making the best thing because it's too risky or uh, edgy for our, our government or our university or, you know, wherever it is that we're, uh, we're working. So people can, can and should take advantage of that, I think. And I think one sort of finalish thing before I get like your, your last thoughts, it's interesting that you, you said you were, you're, one of the things you were looking at was sort of the, the effects of pornography. And I find it really interesting that if you really, really look at it, Pornography in general has been essentially at the forefront of a lot of technological and innovation and pretty much like things like the internet, a lot of camera technology, AR, VR, I think even like payment portals is something that like without the, the porn industry, like a lot of these things never would have happened. Um, and it seems like there's, let's say, they jump on innovation, let's say, around the camera, but it doesn't seem like they necessarily have jumped on innovation, what, what's actually in front of them on the camera. Um, and I, I find that as something really, really interesting. Like, let's say, why have they not been, I don't know, the forerunners of, of, of stuff to, let's say, help people sexually, even though that's kind of what they do, that's what their in industry is centered around. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, because you said you are studying some of the stuff around pornography. I, I, I'm curious about your take on this, of why it's sort of, let's say, helping a lot of tech that's not really sex tech, even though, like, it seems like it'd be the natural place for, for sex tech to be developed. I think some of it, I, you know, I'm not in that industry myself, but there's quite a lot written about it by academics. And a lot of it is the industry has changed a lot over time. So we used to have these big uh, houses that were central hubs and, you know, you had to apply to actually become a porn uh, performer. And so it restricted the bodies that were represented, but uh, also kind of can, um, caused a focus of monies, you know, in these uh, specific houses that could get these people together. And now it's democratized through OnlyFans and similar outlets to where uh, a lot more people can be engaged in it. We have a lot of different body representation than we used to, but there's not the central funding anymore. So I think where people are imagining, you know, the big um, porn god in the sky, you know, who's got all this money in their hands, uh, there's actually an increasingly distributed funding in that system where you're asking a cam model who's doing this part-time outside their other job, you know, why aren't you innovating the camera? And she's like, what, why would I do that? <laughs> and not that they might not think that was cool, but um, it's a very different system, I think, than a lot of us got used to, you know, 30 years ago, and uh, that a lot of the public is aware of, where they're kind of told, oh, you know, there's this uh, evil porn thing controlling the porn universe. And obviously there are some bigger websites, but uh, there's been a huge democratization of pornography in the last 30 years. It's just not as concentrated as it used to be. And I think that means the kind of funding that you would need to do that kind of innovation may not be there in the way that you might think, <laughs> despite that there's a lot of money going into it broadly. It's not going to one person who has an interest and uh, is future looking to develop those kind of things. It's individual creators who are, you know, just doing their individual thing <laughs> on their cam or their website. I don't know. That's really interesting. I, yeah, that hadn't occurred to me, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I think we're kind of running out of time. Um, I'd love some some last thoughts. Any any final words that you you'd like to put out there? 
I think in general, you know, when I've had folks reach out to me from industry, you know, I just don't have time or inclination to do a lot of that kind of product development, but I'm always happy to help people who are uh, interested in doing that kind of development. So uh, to the extent we can be industry partners, I think there are a lot of us who have an interest in getting things out that are physiologically accurate, you know, that are not uh, targeting a G spot that doesn't really physiologically have any basis. <laughs> you know? uh, it's like, I don't want to see any more of those because uh, that causes problems for me. You know, when I go to publish or try and explain something, if the, the physiology is being represented wrong, uh, we want to help. And often we don't want to take your products or take a bite of them. You know, we, we just want the correct information out. And I think there are a lot of scientists who have that perspective in our field that is like, please just <laughs> let us help, you know, <laughs> let's, uh, let's get the, the physiology right on these. And uh, so to the extent there can be more partnerships, I don't think there needs to be that wall. And it's also fun for us because, you know, we have our hands shackled in some ways from what we're allowed to do and play with in our space. And so that opens us up to being able to actually have these conversations. What if you tried that? Yeah, let me know how that goes. <laughs> you know, I've always wanted to see if I did this in this way and there's no way the study is going to let me do that. So, um, you know, that can be an outlet for us as well to experiment and try things with hardware we otherwise might not you know, have an opportunity to experiment with. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ESI What's Next podcast. ESI is a program aimed at fostering socially responsible, environmentally sustainable student innovation through education and new venture creation. We're grateful to the European Regional Development Fund, Printify, SCB Bank, and Remy for their support. Tune in next week to find out what's next in the world of student entrepreneurship.